There was a man from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Micah. He said to his mother, The eleven hundred pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and even spoke it in my hearing, that silver is in my possession. I took it, but now I will return it to you. And his mother said, May my son be blessed by the Lord. Then he returned the eleven hundred pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, I consecrate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make an idol of cast metal. Yes, that is a story, a story in the Bible, though it is a story that is told with a disclaimer. In those days there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. So clearly the biblical author doesn't really think very much of Micah, his mother, or what they did. And yet the story is there. It was perhaps grudgingly included in the biblical text, possibly as a commentary on just how bad things could get when there was no king. And yet it is a story. A story of interesting characters with interesting motivations. And you all know how I like a good story. This is Retelling the Bible. Episode 4.19 Poor, poor Micah Micah had taken the 1,100 pieces of silver from his mother for no better reason than that he could. He knew all of his mother's hiding places. She didn't think that he knew. She thought that she was so smart when she put all of the coins in a clay jar that fit in a space just behind the cook fire in the kitchen. She cackled and told herself how no one would ever find her hiding spot whenever she thought he wasn't listening. But he knew all of her secrets. If anything, he wanted to teach her a lesson. He didn't really want to do anything with the money. He just hid it again in another hiding place, a better hiding place. The money was going to be his some day anyway, the only real heritage that he would receive from his only remaining parent. He maybe would have given it back earlier, but you know how it is when you do something that you know is wrong. You kind of lock yourself in. He couldn't give the money back without an explanation. He couldn't spend it without tipping off his mother. He just had to wait for something to happen. The curse was what happened. When his mother discovered the empty jar in its usual hiding place, she swore. And that didn't mean then what it means today. 
she didn't express her anger by uttering four-letter words. No, what she said was very measured and very specific. May Yahweh curse to death whoever has taken this wealth from me. And she said it more than once. She said it when Micah was there to hear it. And it frightened him. The words of such a curse meant something. He tried to forget it. He tried to tell himself that it didn't matter what the old biddy said, but he couldn't shake it. He lost his appetite. He couldn't sleep. There were moments when he felt like the curse was coming true right then. And so he finally broke. He took a deep breath, squared his shoulders, and went to his mother and said, the eleven hundred pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse and even spoke it in my hearing, that silver is in my possession. I took it, he said, but now I will return it to you. Micah didn't really know what he expected from his mother in the way of a reaction, but he knew it wasn't what he got. She had not only been ecstatic to receive back what had been stolen, she was absolutely effusive in her praise. May my son be blessed by Yahweh, she cried. Wow, he thought to himself, I really ought to rob my mother more often if she's going to react like this. He wasn't ready for the difference the whole incident made in his mother. Perhaps because her curse had actually accomplished something, you might say that Micah's mum found religion that day. So much so that on the very day that Micah returned the eleven hundred silver pieces to her, this money that meant more to her than anything. She took two hundred of the pieces of silver and went to a silversmith. She had him cast for her an idol. The idol she had made for her was the goddess Ashima, Ashima in the form of a bold sheep. It looked like a scrawny little thing, but it was beautifully made. Ashima was a consort of Yahweh, the god of Micah's tribe. She was the goddess of good fortune, of luck. And Micah's mother chose her as her goddess to celebrate her good fortune, that she had had her wealth returned to her. Of course, when she died just a month later, it made one wonder whether she had truly well chosen her God. So, Micah inherited 900 pieces of silver and a silver statue. He decided that this was good fortune for him, even if it hadn't been for his mother. 
so Micah proceeded to set up a sanctuary for his god. The first thing that he had made was an ephod. The ephod was another statue, this time in the form of the god Yahweh. But an ephod is not an ordinary idol. It contained a hidden compartment in which he placed the urim and the thummim. These small stones were used to consult the god and to give oracles and predictions. The ephod was made with an additional fifty pieces taken from Micah's fortune. Finally, he made his divine collection complete by taking a few more coins and having them made into teraphim, small representations of his favorite minor, local, and family deities. So, Micah arranged his idol, his ephod, and the teraphim in a lovely little sanctuary that he built, and he sighed with contentment. This is just beautiful, he said to himself. Surely people will come from all over to worship here and to seek the wisdom of the gods, and it will be the foundation of my reputation and my great fortune. But, of course, for that to happen, one more thing was needed. There had to be a priest to lead the sacrifices and to read the oracles from the Urim and the Thummim. So Micah took his eldest son aside and said, Congratulations, son. This is your lucky day. You get to be my priest. The boy did not make a good priest. Part of that had to do with his singular lack of enthusiasm for the role. He had always dreamed of being a hunter and didn't take to priestly duties. But the problem was not really only his fault. He had no knowledge or training. Uh, how could he have? He did not know how to properly slaughter and butcher the beasts for sacrifice. As a result, those who came to worship were often sorely disappointed in the pieces of meat that they were given for their family feasts. But worse than that, the boy didn't have a clue as to how to read the Urim and the Thummim. As a result, the oracles that he gave inspired absolutely no confidence in the worshippers and were often quickly proved to be quite false. It didn't take long for people to catch on, and they stopped coming to the sanctuary that Micah had so lovingly constructed, preferring to go elsewhere, where at least the priests knew what they were doing. Micah was far from gracious about the whole situation. He constantly berated his son for his failures and punished him for what was really beyond his own control. The mood in his family grew darker and more discouraging, and Micah began to feel as if the good fortune that he sought 
was ever more elusive as time went by. One day, as Micah sat despondent in his unfrequented sanctuary, he heard a voice on the threshold. He immediately sprang to his feet because, hey, a, a customer is a customer. He was about to call out for his useless son to come when he saw the figure that appeared in the doorway and immediately fell silent. The man wore clothes that marked him as a Levite, a member of a tribe of men who were renowned for their knowledge of priestly matters. Micah immediately understood that there was nothing that his son could offer in his ignorance that would impress a man like this. And so instead of calling out, he immediately sprang forward to greet the man as an honored guest. Within a few minutes, Micah had brought the man into his home and was offering him hospitality in the form of a cup of wine and fine barley cake. We do not see very many of your tribe up in this country these days, Micah asked. What brings you this way? My name is Jonathan. I come from Bethlehem, the man replied. You probably haven't heard of it. It is a town far to the south of here, where I grew up as the youngest son of my father, Gershom, the local priest. But as Bethlehem is such a small place with only a minor shrine, I knew very well that there would only be a place for one of my brothers to inherit our father's role. So I have decided to head out and seek my own fortune in the wider world. May Yahweh be praised, Micah cried out when he heard this. Surely you have been sent here by Ashima, who is the pledge of my own good fortune. For, as you have seen, I have built a beautiful sanctuary here by my house. An odd look came over the face of the Levite as he glanced over in the direction of the shrine. He seemed to be about to say something and then uh, to think better of it. He nodded rather vaguely. So, Micah continued, if your father was a priest, then surely he taught you the mysteries of the sacrifice, the slaughtering of the animals, and the preparation of fine portions. Jonathan nodded again. He most certainly did. And did he also teach you how to read the oracles, the Urim and the Thummim? The Levite snorted. <laughs> I can read those like the back of a cereal box. Micah was puzzled. Like a what? Never mind, the Levite laughed. It's just something I once foresaw with the Urim and the Thummim. Don't worry, I can read them. Well, 
Micah rubbed his hands together. If that is true, I have a bit of a proposition for you. Six months later, Micah looked back on that conversation and decided that it was about the best decision he had ever made. The Levite had been hired on as his own personal priest. Micah's son had been so ecstatic when he heard the news. It cost Micah a bit to keep the man from Bethlehem. He bade him a regular wage, fed him, and kept him in priestly clothing. But it was worth it. As the word began to spread that a genuine Levite was working in the sanctuary, someone who could read the Urim and the Thummim with great accuracy, people began to come and bring their sacrifices and to seek the words of the gods. Micah was certain that this would all soon lead to much good fortune for himself and for his family. Later that day, Micah felt even more certain of his good fortune when five men arrived from a great distance. They were men of the tribe of Dan. Now Micah knew for sure that this sanctuary of his would prosper. <laughs> People had begun to come from far and wide, even from the distant encampments of the Danites to worship in this place. He was going to be rich and famous too. He was a good host. He welcomed the strangers into his house and offered them hospitality. He began to talk about his sanctuary and about the great renown that it was beginning to have in the countryside. In the midst of that, he, of course, made a point of letting it slip that he had a genuine Levite presiding over it. As soon as they heard that word, Levite, the five men lost all interest in Micah's conversation and his hospitality. They insisted that they had to see this Levite, and that they had something very important and very private to ask of the god. It seemed that Micah had no choice. He sent for the priest. And so it was that Jonathan soon found himself surrounded by five very earnest men. What can I do for you, my friends? He asked. Do you desire to make a sacrifice? Or do you seek a word from the god? We seek an oracle, one of the men said. And we also need to know that what we ask of you will remain between you and the god. Jonathan was indignant. Everything I hear from the god is always kept in the strictest confidence. You can be sure that I will not tell anyone else. 
Very well, said the leader. We have been sent on a very important mission. We are charged with finding a new homeland for our people. We need to know if our mission will be successful. The Levite nodded and turned to take the ephod. He removed the Urim and the Thummim from it and paused to put himself into the right frame of mind. He said the words and cast them on the ground before him. He examined them carefully while the men watched with bated breath. Finally, he looked up with a smile. You will be successful, he said. You will find a home for your people far to the north of here. Look to the people who live at Laish. You must take their land and build a great city. Jonathan paused. But think, sons of Dan, wouldn't your new territories be even greater if you had a skilled priest with you? The man scoffed. <laughs> what? Someone like you? Some nobody priest from a backwater sanctuary in the middle of nowhere? The Levite bristled. Nobody? My name is Jonathan, son of Gershom. Maybe you've heard of Gershom? He just happened to be the son of a guy named Moses. The five strangers merely looked at one another. They gave no indication of whether they believed Jonathan's claims, or for that matter, whether they had any idea who Moses was. They just paid for the oracle and left soon afterwards. It was about two months later when Micah returned to his house from the fields one day, and he looked down into the valley that lay nearby. He could not believe his eyes. There he saw an encampment. There were about six hundred men of the tribe of Dan, all of them well armed, all of them ready for war. He cried out in great fear, ran into his house, and slammed the door. He called out to his priest, Have you seen the great host of Danites that is camped out almost on my doorstep? Do you have any idea why they are here? Do they mean to attack us? I do not think so, my lord, Jonathan answered him. The men of Dan who passed through here some months ago were looking for a new land for their people to settle, but I sent them on to seek out a place far to the north. The Levites' assurances seemed hollow when the next day the entire army came right up to the gate of Micah's house. Suddenly from among their ranks emerged five familiar faces. 
the scouts who had passed through before. They didn't speak to anybody. They didn't need to. They just walked into the sanctuary, walked right up to the front of it, and began to gather up the silver idol, the ephod, and the teraphim. The Levite was there in the sanctuary. Wait, he cried out aloud for everyone in the community to hear. What are you doing? Keep quiet, replied the men loudly. And then, more quietly, We accept your offer, grandson of Moses. Come with us, and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be priest to the house of one person, or to be priest to a tribe and clan in Israel? And so Jonathan, son of Gershom, son of Moses, went with them. And even as they left, while the dust of the departing company could still be seen on the horizon, Micah returned home from wherever he had been. His servants immediately directed him towards the chapel, and he ran inside and saw at once that everything had been taken from him. His idol was gone, and so were the ephod and the teraphim. Worst of all, it seemed that that miserable, ungrateful Levite had abandoned him as well. He had been robbed, robbed of the things most precious and dear to him. And if there was anything that Micah hated, it was a thief. He immediately called up all of his neighbors, everyone who owed him anything, and demanded that they come with him and take back what was his. And so Micah and his motley crew gave chase to the Danites, and much to the consternation of many in the group, they actually caught up with them. The men of Dan turned laughing. What's the matter that you come with such a company, they demanded. Micah was close to tears. You take the gods that I made and the priest and go away, and what have I left? How then can you ask me what is the matter? At that, the men of Dan stopped laughing. Their threat was palpable. You had better not let your voice be heard among us, or else hot-tempered fellows will attack you, and you will lose your life and the lives of your household. The men of Dan moved on towards their new settlement, bearing with them the idol and the ephod, and the teraphim that they had stolen. In their midst proudly walked the man who would found a legendary priestly dynasty among them, and Micah was left there alone, weeping on the road. 
They had taken everything from him. His wealth, his gods, and his good fortune. The world was so unfair. Many times, after I publish one of these podcast episodes, I've had somebody say to me, You know, I never knew that that was in the Bible. Well, this was one that I felt I had to tell because, honestly, I didn't even know that it was in the Bible. Oh, I'm sure that I've read it before, but, but somehow it never made it into my consciousness. But what a story! It's a story filled with elements that no one can really quite explain. What idol did Micah have? What was his ephod? We do know that at a certain point in history, an ephod became an item of clothing, sort of like a vest. But it doesn't seem to be that in this story. It probably became a vest because it was, at one point, a pouch on the breastplate of a priest, a pouch to hold the urim and the thummim. So maybe, at one point, an ephod was simply anything that held the urim and the thummim. And what the heck were those things, and the urim and the thummim, anyways? We honestly don't know. All we know about them was that they were used to seek clear answers from God. We also don't really have a clue what teraphim were, apart from some indications in other stories that they were small and connected to the gods in some way. And here is something that I find a little bit amazing about this story. A couple of weeks ago, I was writing this episode and puzzling through how to describe the idol, the ephod, and the teraphim, when I got a suggestion from one of my most devoted listeners. She goes by the name of Heretical Clever Girl on Reddit. She challenged me to tell the story of Moses' grandson, Jonathan, because, yes... She had obviously been reading this very same passage and puzzling over how Moses' grandson could have possibly been presiding as a priest among the people of Dan in a chapter near the end of the book of Judges. Very good question, heretical clever girl. So I decided to explore that question as a part of my story as well. I don't think it's an unreasonable assumption to make that this Jonathan was supposed to be the same priest that the Danites enticed away from Micah's sanctuary when they stole the cultic objects. Whoever he was, and whether or not his claims to be an heir of Moses are legitimate, his story also raises certain questions about the roles of the Levites in the land prior to the reforms of King Josiah that brought them into service at the temple in Jerusalem. 
That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Please subscribe so you can get the next one in a couple of weeks. A five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or some other podcasting platform is a great way to help other people find this podcast. The theme music for the podcast is Ada, and the mood music for this episode is Parting of the Ways, Part 1. The music is by Kevin MacLeod, licensed under the Creative Commons, and can be found at incompetech.com. You can contact me on Twitter at Retelling Bible or on the Facebook page Retelling the Bible. Show notes for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. This is Retelling the Bible, and I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless. <laughs>